You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world, and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Dr. Rebecca Southerns is my guest on the podcast for this episode. When I first connected with Rebecca to chat about being on the podcast, we ended up having a complete conversation about business and a number of other things before we even got to talk about her being a guest, which gives you a good idea of the kind of person that Rebecca is. She's generous, willing to share, and certainly willing to build other people up. So it won't surprise you when you hear about how deeply Rebecca has thought about different aspects of collaboration and how she puts them into practice and how she's built a business around them. She's certainly a thought leader in this space, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Can you introduce yourself? You know, tell me a little about who you are and where you are and a little bit about your business. Sure. So uh, my name is Dr. Rebecca Southerns. I am based in Guelph, Ontario, so about an hour west of Toronto. And I'm heading into year 25 of my own business, which has focused on facilitating collaborative planning. My main uh, client groups would be medium to large nonprofits and other community builders like municipal governments, universities, and health organizations. And mostly what I do for them would be strategic planning, lots of coaching with executive directors and board chairs, and also training and nimble leadership. So I very much enjoy it. And yeah, I'm, I'm also a mom of four young adult kids, and we have a fairly new granddaughter that we enjoy too. So missing traveling right now, but loving uh, spending some extra time with the family. Oh, that's awesome. And congratulations on your granddaughter. Thank you. When I was reading a description of you and your business, one of the things that was mentioned was this notion of a collaborative strategist. And I was wondering if you could expand on that and describe what, what is a collaborative strategist? How does, how does one become one? How does one do that kind of work? Well, I don't think it's something you can major in in university or something, but it does describe what I most of the time do. And what it is for me is helping people Untangle knots is one of the things I think about is is really thinking about sticky problems that need untangling strategically. And sometimes it's actually connecting dots. It's finding patterns. It's seeing a pathway through things. And so it could be something as formal as a strategic plan. It could be, sometimes it involves mediation. Sometimes it involves just giving some trusted advice at a strategic level, including working on governance issues with boards, for example, or other kinds of high-level, long-term, looking down the long road kind of work. But the collaborative piece is key because that really speaks to how and why I do it. I think that um, it's very important that those kinds of strategic decisions, and and I really do believe that strategy making is about choice making. And I think making decisions as a group collaboratively leads to better decisions, leads to decisions with more traction and more staying power, um, better perspectives. And so both of those pieces are important to me that we are being insightful and that we're doing it in a way that involves lots of people. How does that sort of translate to businesses, say, coming to you? And do they, do they know what they're asking for when they come to you? Or is there an education component in what you do as well to say, I'm assuming you're not the one doing their visioning, you're helping them do their visioning. How does that play out in a business you know, when a business approaches you? Well, certainly as they are assessing whether I'm a good fit for them, it's something I would talk about. And then it's also something that I would talk about in the initial kind of kickoff meeting. So 
there is a soft educational component to it, but partly it's also given that it's how I work, I think it's part of discerning fit. And that's why it's important that it come up earlier rather than later. And it would come up in how I describe the planning processes that I would be proposing to any given client. So I think it would come up in lots of ways that way. I think also I get a chance then to explain that I think collaborative processes are protective because you get multiple perspectives on an issue and therefore you deal with blind spots that might otherwise be causing you trouble. And it also has the potential to build buy-in because you have a broader spectrum of people getting involved in that conversation. And for some organizations, in fact, many that I work with, collaboration would be the default. So this isn't really surprising to them. And if anything, we would need to uh, limit, not limit it, but be more purposeful about who should be involved at what stages and why. Whereas in certain sectors, a collaborative approach to planning would be quite countercultural because they would be used to making those decisions in a, in a very, maybe a top-down kind of way or, you know, sort of an edict from on high or somebody just, you know, comes up with their own vision for something. So I think the context in which I talk about collaborative strategy varies and therefore the messaging that I need to provide varies. But I think it's important for me from a business point of view to make it really clear what they're getting and then they can decide if that's a good match for their needs or not. Right. When you talked about organizations that have kind of that counterculture to collaboration, have you worked with many of those? It, it sounds like you, you tend to have businesses select you as a service provider, as a, as a consultant, because they are already in that collaborative space and they're just looking for some help. But my question would be, what do you do in the cases where there's a counterculture? Like, do you often get to convince people that, you know, get them to change their mind from counterculture to actual culture? You're probably right that a lot of a lot of those would self-select out because they wouldn't call me in the first place or they would find that I'm not the right fit for them on the one hand. On the other hand, I think there is a pretty strong educational component, maybe not on let's do this collaboratively, but on how or what does that actually look like. So lots of conversations about who should be involved or who could be involved at different stages and also conversations about collaboration, not necessarily meaning that it slows things down. Uh, I think there's a stereotype that collaborative decision-making is therefore slow or cumbersome or something. So I think there is a bit of myth-busting that needs to go on. But I think it's fair to say that businesses that are really not interested in any kind of participatory processes probably wouldn't call me in the first place because they may not even need or perceive that they need outside help with what they're doing because they would just, in the case of planning, they would just write it themselves. Right. That makes a lot of sense because you wouldn't even begin looking for something unless you were interested in it in the first place. I think that's true, but they don't always know how to do it. True. Yeah. How does collaboration show up for you? You know, maybe it's, it's a way to start the a discussion, you know, our discussion around how do you define collaboration? What's, what's in the tent and what's out of the tent? As I said, I think multiple perspectives are helpful because no one person has the full picture. So in that sense, I think collaboration involves multiple perspectives on a challenge. But I think the harder place is when collaborative decisions are actually going to be made. And so think of the difference between asking a bunch of people for their input 
that you will then individually take under advisement versus agreeing that a group, maybe a small group, but still a group of people are going to decide something. Um, so I think one of the differences is, you know, collaborative decision-making is not the same as consultation, for example, but all of it could be considered collaborative. So I think there is a spectrum of, I don't know if I'd call it levels of collaboration or degrees of it, where we say we need those multiple perspectives. And also that level of buy-in, I think, probably does shift based on the extent to which the final decisions are reflective of the input that was heard, right? So certainly the, the International Association of Public Participation, for example, has a good spectrum on levels of engagement, ranging from just providing information to people through asking them for their input, through actually transferring decision-making power to them. So I think it's a big tent and who gets in it depends on, or how you organize it, I think depends on the level of collaboration you want for different stages of a project. So I'm familiar with the IAP2 or the International Association of Public Participation Spectrum and collaboration is one of the the buckets on that on that suite of approaches. So, would you see a spectrum inside collaboration, or would you see that whole engagement spectrum as kind of different forms of collaboration? I think probably I would tend to say the latter, even though you're right that one of the columns within that spectrum or moments on it is called collaboration. I guess I'm defining it just as my working definition as saying any of those. I don't know if I would call information provision actual collaboration, but I guess at, at, a, at an extreme point, you could consider it that. I think for me, it's not really about being precise about the definition as much as it is about being candid and clear in the expectations that we have in any given project or initiative. What level of involvement will people have? both to be able to give any kind of input and or to make decisions. Will they be asked their perspective? Will they be asked to weigh in on how a decision will be made? Will they be asked to make that decision? And then another piece isn't so much what level of, say, authority or involvement does one have, but also how is the process managed? This is really the facilitation piece. How is it that that collaboration is managed from a process design and facilitation point of view and what skills might be necessary both from the facilitator's point of view and from the group member's point of view in order to leverage the possibilities that collaboration brings because I don't think it's always done well. I don't think it's always super successful. I'm obviously a fan, but I I think it flourishes under certain conditions. So I can speak as I did to the benefits of it, but that kind of assumes that it's done well. And, you know, so we haven't really, we've talked maybe about what it is, but there's also kind of a range of quality inside that too. Right. And, and that's actually a nice sort of lead into where I was wanting to go with our discussion, which was about how you collaborate, how your skills sort of play into the successes you've had in collaboration. So what makes your brand of collaboration or approach to collaboration, what makes that unique? And is, is there a story that goes with that to sort of exemplify your approach? I always kind of grin at the idea of uniqueness because I, I don't know. I mean, there might be other people just like me that I haven't met yet. 
So, you know, I'm not sure if I can say that I'm singular in something, but I can certainly describe the way that I do it. And, <laughs> um, you know, and that has to do with asking the questions of the client that take us down the pathway of saying who needs to be in the room, whose voices need to be heard, who is systematically excluded or unheard that we need to include and using what means of reaching them. I think it also has to do with being quite self-aware as a facilitator. Who am I representing? What does my role or allegiance or style or intersectional identities, what do all of those things do to shape the nature of the collaboration that's happening? But it's interesting because I think one of my, I don't know, learning moments in my career was was when I realized the irony, not in a good way, of the fact that I help other people collaborate, but many times I'm doing it alone because I'm a sole practitioner. I do have a roster of associates and support staff that that help me at times. But generally, my work is on my own helping groups of people do stuff. So that led to me being much more intentional about building communities of practice, about getting connected with professional associations or with programs that give me colleagues. And so I'm much more intentional about being, about doing my work more collaboratively now, although it still is just me lots of times. It's also making sure that that work is informed by lots of different voices sort of behind and underneath me supporting me in that because there is a a pretty great irony to being a sole practitioner who this is collaboration, right? Is there, are there key ingredients to the, the things you do? I realize you're, you're orchestrating collaboration on your own, but are there certain things you talked about people in the tent and bringing voices, unheard voices and underrepresented voices into the equation? Are there other ingredients that are necessary for collaboration to be successful? Your collaboration? I mean, lots. I think one of them is being really clear about purpose. So what does a win look like? What does success look like? And not just for an overall project, but maybe for any given component within the project. So it might be what's success for this particular meeting or this chunk of a meeting and being very purposeful because I think that the main role of a facilitator is to help a group achieve its objectives. And so collaboration itself isn't the objective most of the time for me, it's a means to something. And so I want to be clear about collaboration to what end. And so my job is to keep those ends in mind throughout. So I think that's an ingredient. I think another ingredient would be what I would consider, I don't know, solid communication and people skills, right? Asking good questions, listening carefully, giving people an opportunity to hold space for conversations that need to happen. I'm pretty big on candor in a space and naming what is going on and giving people an opportunity to speak frankly about what they need to say while at the same time not presuming to be able to create a level of psychological safety in a room that I can't be responsible for. I'm not going to be the facilitator that walks into a team I don't know, for example, and say, oh, this is a safe space. You can say whatever you want. My presence and my wish for it to be safe don't make it safe. There are existing power dynamics and 
relationship frictions and baggage that I know nothing about. And so, yes, my, my facilitative skills will help to create some respectful dialogue and turn-taking and equal airtime and various components like that that are helpful. And I think different people from a participant side bring a different level of skill in terms of collaborating. I think also collaboration can happen inside a team or inside an organization and can also happen across organizations. And so, you know, sometimes it is multi-agency collaboration or multi-sector collaboration. And I think in some ways the the skills required are slightly different, although they would overlap, because promoting the good of the organization might be, I don't know, less contentious and a little more of a shared definition inside a team than it would be across a community. For example, if we were doing cross-sectoral system-wide planning, the objectives get muddy because there might be an objective for the collaboration that may or may not coincide with an organization's objective that its leadership might have for that one organization. And so you're often dealing with competing purposes and trying to balance inputs and competing values and that kind of thing. So I think paying attention to sort of what's getting rewarded, what a win looks like, what success would be in this situation. Those are some of the skills that I would want to see not only me bringing to it, but also the participants being aware of. Do you have an example of a of a really successful collaboration that kind of highlights some of these these dynamics that you're talking about? One that comes to mind is I was working with a series of agencies that all did similar work in a social services space across a community. So they each had their own unique identities. They did not want to merge. They didn't want to lose their uniqueness to each other. They were very different in size and in history. And yet from a public facing point of view, from the service buyers or from the client's point of view, they, they, de- they wouldn't necessarily have seen a big difference across these organizations. And funders were asking them to collaborate more closely because it seemed that they were duplicating effort in an inefficient way across the community. And in that particular example, I think the collabor- collaboration worked partly because one of their leaders who brought me in as an external facilitator saw the potential in collaboration and wasn't afraid of it, didn't see it as potentially resulting in any one organization losing its core. And so that group of people were really reluctant generally to be involved in these collaborative discussions. There was a lot of fear, a lot of resistance. And over time, we were able to build a bit of trust in each other and in the process such that they were able to build a shared path forward that maintained their individual identities, but also leveraged some economies of scale and efficiencies that could be gained from working together. And as a result, they ended up landing increased funding because the funders were glad that they were finally working together and they could really see how to leverage that. So for example, they developed a shared intake process, a single phone number, one website. So lots of individual uniquenesses in the background, but from a client-facing point of view, the ease of navigation in the system really went up and they built trust in one another because just the process of collaborating gave them reason to be together and get to know each other better and build some rapport that hadn't been there before. And maybe some walls of suspicion started breaking down a little. And so there were some very concrete benefits to them working together to their clients and to them 
that I don't think would have been yielded if they hadn't been willing to take the risk to collaborate in the first place. And it really did feel like a risk. Was there a, a point where that particular collaboration, where it kind of made a, did a turning point from, it had the potential to go in the ditch more so than it had the potential to succeed? And was there, is it just a trust-based pivot point there? Anything else that played into sort of the shift from one side to the other? It's a really good question. I would say the trajectory in that particular project was that we met individually with each organization first and heard their concerns in a space that did not involve everybody else initially. So I had some access, therefore, to what they were nervous about and then was able to design a collaborative process once they were together in the room that hopefully honored some of those concerns. And I think their willingness even to show up. And we met together, I don't know, maybe five or six times over a six month period, something like that. As they continued to show up and to be able to see the benefits that were possible from the collaboration, those benefits started actually becoming real. So I think their willingness to be, to let themselves be heard in a safer space initially, and then to trust just enough to come to the next meeting. And sometimes that's all it was. Like, would you give us one more? Could we try one more? And I think over the course of that emergent design, they built confidence in one another, but also confidence that this process would be beneficial to them and that they, even the small agencies would be heard. And they just started to see the value in it gradually over time. And so I don't know if I can point to one conversation or one meeting, but I think the change from the beginning to the end was really quite dramatic. And what I noticed was that in addition to those formal sessions, they were starting to talk together more outside of the sessions and agreeing to share some resources and share some services. And and so I think those informal relationships outside of the formal space helped. And I think also having some tangible benefits that, you know, if we could figure out this joint strategy, there might be you know, benefits to our clients. There might be more resources coming our way. It will benefit us in certain ways. And I think too often collaboration just sort of spins and it's not always clear to people why they're showing up for a meeting, but they almost don't want to miss out. So they come, but they don't really know other than it being, you know, the first Wednesday of the month or something, what the reason is for them to show up. And I tried to keep this collaboration very purposeful and very focused on potential benefits and then saying what conditions would have to be true in order for those benefits to be realized. And I think eventually they were. So where I was going with my thinking while you were kind of describing that was there's also, at least from my experience in the collaborative world, there's also kind of an informal, almost social side to collaboration. And I'm wondering how that's played into maybe some of some of the work that you do. So what I'm referring to is sometimes if you take the people out of the the room, you know, the the room in the basement of the hotel where they're they're trying to collaborate, I'm using air quotes, and you take them to, you know, the local pub for, you know, for wings, as an example, all of a sudden barriers start dropping because they're actually now interacting more as people and less as representatives. How does that show up in your in your space? I think it's really true. I mean, I think relational currency is almost like a lubricant of collaboration. And similarly, if you have a crunchy sort of fraught relationship with someone from other interactions previously, 
future collaboration with that person is going to be difficult. And I think trust is the is the currency there. I think it has to do with maybe familiarity, but I think it also has to do with shared goals because if you know you might have a, a great relationship personally with someone, but if the representation, as you said, that that person brings to a table is at odds with the needs that you need to represent at the table, for sure that relationship can help. But I think understanding your allegiances is really important. So for example, the story I was just telling about the counseling collaborative, if they looked at their job as let's make counseling more universally accessible to our community, all of a sudden they can all get on board with that. If they perceive their role, however, as protecting their agency, being an ambassador for their organization only, then the collaborative opportunity is more limited. So yes, I think there's an informal element to this. And in some ways under pandemic life, that informal casual contact and that connective tissue and small talk and all of that is what we're really missing now. Now that we've figured out how to collaborate online in a more formal way, it's the informal stuff most people are missing. But having said that, I don't, it might be a necessary, but an insufficient condition because I think shared objectives um, and shared values are the most important thing, whether you have an outside of work relationship with the person or you don't. Right. So let's, you know, shift gears a little bit. And, and I'm curious about whether you've worked in sort of a collaborative space in a crisis type situation where it's again, a different flavor of collaboration. How does that, how have you seen that show up? Hmm. I feel like life under COVID is like the crisis that never ends, right? And so at the beginning of that, it seemed like we were sprinting and that, you know, things were urgent and, you know, it was an emergency. And I think the sprint has become a marathon and now has become an ultra marathon. And it's the longest crisis that any of us have lived in. And I think a couple things that have happened in there One is that I see some collaborative examples that would not have been as fruitful in a non-emergency situation, partly because the emergency lent some urgency to it and broke down some bureaucratic barriers. So I have several examples where clients have said, you know, we had a proposal in to do something really creative and we were told by the funder or the bureaucracy that it was just not possible, or at least it just wasn't a high priority for them for years. And all of a sudden COVID hit and we managed to do it in three months or in 48 hours in some cases. So I think there's a, there's a speed to collaboration when you're under pressure that really helps. But I think it also means that there just can't by definition be the same amount of care or evaluation or planning. And so to the extent that those things slow us down and really are encumbrances, it's a good thing that they are, you know, shed during a time of crisis to the extent that they actually help us be thoughtful and evidence-based and, you know, careful. That's not such a good thing. I think the other thing is that in crisis, if it's a short-term crisis, you're dealing with people on high adrenaline, for better or worse. Sometimes that can really heighten our decision-making capacity, for example, and there's a certain buzz that gives us energy. But I think looking at our COVID example again, now we're dealing with tired and stressed people over months. And I'm not sure that the neuroscience evidence would suggest and our social evidence behaviorally would suggest that tired, stressed people make their best decisions. But to me, that's all the more reason to be collaborative in those decisions because 
if I'm not at my best, I don't want to be relied upon solely to make important decisions. And yet there are important decisions to be made. So I would rather have multiple perspectives on that decision to protect the quality of the decision when I know that I'm not at my best. You know, a couple of thoughts come to mind. And one was, do you think that the relationships that happen in crisis, the collaborative relationships that occur because of a, of a crisis or in an emergency, do they endure the same as sort of non-crisis relationships? I would imagine that, I mean, the answer to that is variable, right? It, but I think what I've noticed is that when you've lived through a crisis with someone, it bonds you, right? You've got something, this, this deep shared experience that might allow you to seek that person out for longer term, less emergent collaborative opportunities later. Yeah. So I think, you know, that shared history um, when you've lived through a crisis together can help, but I could also see it go, see it going the other way. Right. I mean, when you dealt with people at their worst that are, you know, on edge and stressed and exhausted, you very well can have absolutely enough of each other and wouldn't, and you know, people's true colors come out, right. When we are stressed, we're almost like a caricature of our best selves, right. We it's, it's almost like we, become the same person we always are, but more, bigger, amplified. And so to the extent that a collaborative partner is someone that you find difficult to work with, those same difficulties are probably going to be accentuated in crisis. And generally too, when we're under stress, our threshold to be irritated and irritable and maybe irritating (laughs) is high. And so, you know, if someone is willing to persist in collaborating with me when I am long-term exhausted and not amazing. Wait till they see me when I've gotten some sleep and, and, you know, can, can get out and visit with friends again, and maybe I'll be an even better partner by then. So I can see it playing out lots of ways. Yeah. And I was kind of just digging into that a little bit because it was a thought that popped to mind around the kinds of relationships that will exist after this COVID time. And, and what might we expect? And I kind of like the thinking that, well, if, if you were a pain in the butt before, you might be a bigger pain in the butt <laughs> during the crisis. So is there anything that I haven't asked you that maybe you'd wanted to speak to today? I think one of the things that I'm interested in is what allows us to build the capacity to be adaptable. Because I think collaborative relationships need flexibility and you need to be clear together on what is negotiable and what isn't, or what can flex and what can't. And also having a sense of, yeah, what, where the non-negotiables are, not just in terms of outcomes, but also in terms of process. And so that's a, a space that I find really interesting is to say, what kind of frameworks and structure and expectations can we put around our collaborative experiences so that the scaffolding holds, but that all the other stuff that gets hung on that scaffolding can be adjusted over time without needing to be too rigid and having it be so rigidly structured that it snaps under pressure. And so, um, yeah, like I, I wrote a book a year and a half ago called Nimble, and it's about facilitation, but it actually has a lot of resonance right now around leadership and saying nimble leaders understand the right level of 
rigidity that's needed and the right level of flexibility. So I think about that, I'm no architect, but I think of it in architectural terms that I live near Toronto and the CN Tower in Toronto, but you would think of that as a firm structure, but of course, given the wind and other factors, it needs to have a certain amount of give to it. And it's very strange for me to think about the concept of firm, tall buildings having give. And and I think that's a really helpful image for our collaborative relationships too, that we need to have just the right amount of structure and, and a lot of flexibility. And I think as a facilitator, my interest is in making sure that I understand my own default in that because when we get stressed, as I mentioned, we regress to a, an extreme version of ourselves. And so if you are someone who loves detail and structure and predictability and orchestration, you're going to get pretty inflexible under stress and maybe especially so in a collaborative relationship if you think your way is best, you know? And I think on the other hand, if you tend to be a really spontaneous person who is okay to wing it, having no agenda and no script can also be very stressful for people. So I think trying to lower the collective stress level and maintain a sight line, which is actually the title of my more recent book, is what what are we going after? But being really flexible in how we get there, I think is a very helpful stance when it comes to collaboration. And also making sure that you have someone who can navigate you through that collaborative relationship with some skill. Because I think people are told to collaborate. They want to, they're expected to, but we aren't taught how. And so even if we can't train people in collaboration all the time, we can certainly look for facilitators who can help a group do it well and not just assume that because it's a good thing, everybody knows how to do it because I don't think we do. I completely agree. And that's kind of what I've been encountering a few weeks ago. I had a discussion about bridging organizations, which are the kinds of organizations that sort of step into that space of helping people come together to collaborate, similar to what a facilitator might do, but almost at an organizational level. I'm starting to sort of connect all of these types of dots, like you say. And I kind of like this idea that, again, just to reiterate that we're the person we are just becomes amplified in under certain conditions. And sometimes the, those conditions are even artificial. They're not even real crises like time crunch. I've worked who worked in that space too, where there's sort of an artificial deadline and all of a sudden everybody gets all bent out of shape. So, And I don't think, I don't think decisions that are rushed, like I don't think an artificial time crunch leads us to great decision-making, but at the same time, we know from creativity research that constraints or edges or challenges actually do increase our creativity. So I don't think having some either re- imposed or self-created, I don't know, real or artificial boundaries is necessarily a bad thing. But if it feels really arbitrary and isn't increasing our creativity, but instead is increasing our stress or increasing our poor decision-making, I think that's an entirely different thing. But I'm learning to accept and maybe even embrace constraints as a pathway to improved collaboration. And I think certainly in the pandemic and what you asked before about crisis communications would would suggest that, that there are some examples where constraints have unleashed amazing compassion and innovation and other times where it just hasn't and people have just 
broken under the pressure of it. So I don't think it's a one size fits all answer, but I think it's really important to think about how you can collaborate well, organizationally or personally, in order to make it more likely that the potential benefits of collaboration will in fact be your story. Yes. So I have just a couple, maybe three questions to, to wrap up our conversation to, for today, if you're, if you're ready to go on those. Okay. So is there something that people typically misunderstand about you? I don't know if that's on a personal level or, or in terms of my collaborative work, but I think one of the things is probably misunderstanding professionally, at least, what a facilitator or a strategist can and can't do. So sometimes they want me to write something for them that I just, it's not mine to write. It's their decision to make. So I think there, there can be a misunderstanding of my role. Yeah, I think I, that would be one, one thing. But on, on the whole, I think, I think it's fair to say that I don't generally go through life feeling broadly misunderstood. So it may not be a, I don't know, it's maybe not my, my best answer because of that. <laughs> That's okay. Um, what, what book would you routinely give to somebody as a gift or what resource might you sort of point people towards on a routine basis? I host an online leadership book club for leaders who don't have time to read as much as they'd like to. And so my head is full of book possibilities that I love to tell people about. So admittedly, the answer to this question in real life changes all the time because I do give people resources, books in particular, all the time. And they vary based on what I've been reading and on who the person is and you know all that kind of stuff. So it's hard to pick one. But one of the ones that I find, in, well, maybe I'll give you three. Can I give you three? I don't know. Ah, three is fine. Yeah. One of them. Uh, one is called, excuse the, the flowery title, but the, What the Hell Do We Do Now is a compilation of um, 18 authors, um, most of whom are out of Australia, New Zealand. It's a book that came out earlier in COVID. I do have a chapter in that book. It's, it's a book of coping strategies for businesses to thrive in and after the pandemic. So I like it because it has multiple perspectives and that's kind of my thing. And it's very relevant and current and it's international. So that would be one example. Another one I find myself going back to right now is called From What Is to What If. And it's a book about imagination. And it talks about imagination as a key skill and encouraging us to develop our ability to paint detailed imagination, sorry, detailed imaginative pictures of the future we want to create together that are often catalyzed by what if questions. What if we, how might we, could we? And I found that a really energizing book recently. Um, Concepts that resonate with me a lot anyway, but particularly I think in COVID when I feel like my imagination in some ways has taken a bit of a hit and in other ways is all I've got when I can't actually be traveling for real. Um, and then thirdly, I mentioned that I have a new book out. And so the truthful answer to your question is if I had to look back on the book that I've given away most often recently, it would be Sightline because it's new to me, hot off the presses. And I've made that available to a number of folks with whom I work because it's about how to facilitate collaborative strategy. And um, since that's what we're talking about, I have to say that that would also be one of the other titles that I'd be recommending. That's awesome. The piece around the what if questions, that is often when I talk about collaboration, I, I think about the what if question being sort of the pivotal question for those kinds of discussions. So 
my last question for you is probably it's, it's going to be the toughest out of all of them. I, you know, all of our discussion today, if you were going to clean something first, which would you clean your car, your bedroom or your office? <laughs> well, it's definitely not my car. I don't remember the last time I cleaned out my car. No, it'd be my bedroom. Actually. I like that space to be uncluttered and no work things in sight and no mess in there. And it's one of the few spaces in my world for which that's true If you were seeing me visually right now, you would know that my office is clearly not the number one example and my car is worse. So uh, by default, being not a very clean freak anyway uh, kind of person, I would uh, absolutely say my bedroom because it's the only room in my house that I can pretty much guarantee is tidy most of the time. That's that's fantastic. If you could see my office right now, I'm sitting at the kitchen table with paper strewn all over. So it's clearly not my office either. I actually kind of love having pictures of people's desks because... I think they tell a lot about a person. And when I look at my desk right now, I have a package of colored markers all sitting out and I have a coffee mug that has a picture of a ball of yarn on it, which is significant to me because I'm a knitter and it has one, two, three pairs of glasses and two lipsticks and both of my books and three masks. (laughs) So I'm like, well, that is life in a pandemic right there. So yeah, you can tell a lot by some about someone by the state of their desk. Well, maybe we can get a picture of your desk. Well, we can, post it somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I just want to say thanks for your time today and for your willingness to sort of have a discussion and dig into some of the pieces of collaboration that you feel are important and how it's kind of shown up in your life. So thanks for your time today. I appreciate the opportunity, Scott. Thanks very much. You'll likely note that I come back to a comment that Rebecca makes early on about how people become a caricature of themselves when they are under stress or in a crisis. I guess that imagery really resonated with me because I could even visualize myself as a caricature and what kind of pain I might be. I appreciate how Rebecca uses purpose as a center point for much of the conversation about how collaboration works, using achievement of purpose and its benefits as one of the biggest levers for getting people to collaborate in the first place and keeping them in the collaboration once it's going. Please make sure you check out her two books called Nimble and Sightline. Links to these will be in the show notes. This was a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations. Please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list so interesting things like blog posts, upcoming training, or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating. Collaborating.